Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we are speaking with Mariam Alfaki about the role of the resistance committees in Sudan and what their future holds amid this terrible war. She herself has been an active member of the resistance committees in Bari, Khartoum's northern sister city. Mariam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. So first of all, we've had a, a few episodes, well, not only on Sudan, but with, with those who were caught inside the fighting in Sudan. When the war broke out, where were you and, and what was the situation like? When the war broke out, I was in, in Khartoum, in, in Bahri. I was at my uncle's house, spending the weekend with my family, around 30 kilometers from the center of, uh, of Bahri. So uh, we opened the TV and uh, it's just gunshots everywhere and... and, and and bad news. So I called my family and they said, as far as they are concerned, they are safe. Uh, but the war actually started in the center of Khartoum. Uh, and then the situation started to develop by the hour and the hostilities started to grow as the attacks also happened in my city, Bahri. And then my family had to leave the house and because the area grew more hostile. And then they moved to uh, my grandmother's house, which actually became uh, a hostile area. They had to be evacuated. And then they moved another 15 kilometers away uh, until part of us decided to, to leave because the situation was no longer safe for us. And of course, my father being uh, an opinionated uh, Sudanese person, uh, he refused to leave as many Sudanese men. So uh, myself and my sisters, along with my mother and the children, we left to Egypt. We made it to Egypt actually after eight days, traveling by, by land, of course. Thank you. And your father remains? My father and my brother, they remain in Khartoum. Actually, they remain in Sudan, sorry, but they had to move to another state because also Khartoum is no longer safe. What is life like for those who are still caught inside your area in Bari? I tell you, it's very difficult. In Bahri city specifically, since five days into the war, uh, the main water station was bombed. So uh, Bahri is now uh, 95 days without water, without processed water. Many of the areas of Bahri were evacuated. Many of the neighborhoods were evacuated and people had to be displaced into other neighborhoods, safer neighborhoods in the northern areas of Bahri. And few remain in mid-eastern, western areas of Bahri. The, uh, the, the air raids are uh, making life difficult for, for the majority of them. And uh, also the lack of, of open markets is making life more difficult. Uh, my colleagues are working and volunteers are working to provide drinking water from River Nile, from, from water tanks, but it's not a healthy situation. And as I said, the local markets are closed because of the level of hostility. So uh, there's scarcity of food, there's scarcity of processed water, and there is a huge electricity cut in, in all of Bahri. Hmm. And... You're a member of one of the Bari Resistance Committees, um, and I, I want to talk with you in, in just a bit about the history of these committees and sort of how they come together up until the war. But before we get into all that history, how is the Resistance Committee doing um, and, and sort of what role are they playing now in, um, inside the neighborhood if they're, if they're still able to play any role at all? Well, we're not able to play a political role, but we are playing the humanitarian role. As you know, since the eruption of the war in April 15th, no humanitarian organization or state system was able to operate in all Khartoum. 
So my colleagues in the, in the RCs and the service committees have come together with many volunteers from doctor committees and, and, and other neighborhood committees. They are now volunteering to provide the main services for the uh, citizens. So this is basically what we are doing. And we're also replacing the non-functioning hospitals because since the war also started, many hospitals went out of service. So my colleagues are uh, transporting medical staff, providing them with accommodation and living expenses, basically running the state system. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And then how many, I mean, obviously you had to leave, lots of other people had to leave. Approximately what percentage of the of the resistance committee members have been able to, to stay during this situation? Well, in Khartoum, there aren't many, to be honest. My colleagues face the risk of arrest. We are being chased by, by the military intelligence. So it's very difficult for them to remain in, in such a hostile area and continue to work. But I can say like 30% are only still in Bahri. For those of you who had to leave, how are you also participating? We are, we are now a sort of informal humanitarian organization that is facilitating and implementing the work in Khartoum City. The process starts from finding donors to fund our activities, reporting on activities, coordinating meetings here and there, filing reports, managing social media, and so So uh, the contribution of the field team is, of course, the biggest one, but our contribution is little. That is by, by uh, facilitating meetings, reporting, and so all of the administration work. Hmm. We've talked quite a bit about resistance committees in, the, in past episodes on this podcast, but we've never talked to a member of resistance committee directly. So it's, we're extremely grateful you've come on uh, to talk with us. Uh, can you just describe how they were formed and the role they grew to, to take up before this war broke out? Indeed. The resistance committees, they go way back and to 2013 and 2012, but in its current shape, the RCs were formed in early 2019 uh, with the 2018 revolution. So it's basically a, a very tight and secret formation started from the grassroots at, at the neighborhood level. If you had an interest in opposing the regime and you, had, you agree with the principles of freedom, peace and justice, you call upon your trusted ones, you form a, a very secret committee, and then you start organizing peaceful protests, advocating for, for civil rights, and so. So uh, I'll speak of Bahri, for example. Bahri has 45 neighborhoods, uh, and all of these neighborhoods have resistance committees. And then we decided to come all together and form a city council that is comprised of representatives of each neighborhood. Uh, this applies for the rest of Khartoum City and for the rest of the states. And when did you decide to get involved in the resistance committees? As soon as the call to, to form the resistance committees was made, uh, and especially uh, because my neighborhood is full of, of what we call Kazan. Kazan, that is uh, a, a former regime, uh, an NCP regime affiliate. So it was very risky for us to do it. So, But uh, myself and my sisters, it was this is a personal story, but uh, me and my sisters, one day we, we got fed up of uh, protesting in other neighborhoods and uh, we thought it's best to, to activate our neighborhood and to have our own political voice as women active in, in the neighborhood. So one day we decided to organize a protest in our neighborhood and it actually became very successful. And then we formed the secret committee and that was it for me. Okay. And then once these committees are formed, 
how do the resistance committees coordinate with each other? How do they go about making decisions? Well, we say it's democracy. So, uh, and that is one of our strongest qualities that we have a horizontal formation. There is no designated leadership. And this helps us to to avoid our, our work being destroyed by the security forces. If, if we say we have a hierarchy, like a specific leader, the uh, security forces can simply arrest that leader and the whole movement is gone. But uh, with the horizontal formation, we can replace each other very quickly. And uh, decisions were made and are still made uh, by democracy. We organize discussions among the neighborhoods. And then if it's 70% agreement, uh, we move forward with that decision. If not, we continue to discuss and elaborate more on discussions and put forward uh, our our directions and so. And so it, it doesn't have to be by consensus. There is, a, it's a sort of, it operates on a supermajority form of of approval of 70%. Exactly, yes. And is that the structure of all the committees or just your particular neighborhood one in, in Bari? It's more, or, it's more or less like that. Uh, it's always about voting. It's uh, the majority decide on where to go and what to do. Now, prior to this war, there was a long process of resistance committees coming together um, in a very bottom-up process, as you describe, create and agree on a political charter on on the path forward for Sudan. Can you describe that process? And then, and then we can talk about what that political charter says? Well, yeah, uh, I was also part of writing the charter. I was designated as a representative of Bahri City in the Khartoum State Council. I tell you it was a tough process of up and down, back and forth. Uh, if we don't agree on 70%, if, the, if we don't have 70% agreement, we go back to the grassroots level. We, we conduct uh, workshops, we organize workshops, we conduct uh, grassroots discussions so that we can resolve the issues of disagreement and, and we go back again to state level to uh, convey the opinions of our represent- representations until we reach the uh, 70% agreement. So it was a lot of back and forth, a lot of meetings, a lot of late night meetings. Uh, I tell you, one workshop or one meeting can can go up to six or seven and maybe eight hours sometimes. And when was this? This was in 20... How long did this process uh, take place and, and what was the time period? The charter was initiated in 2021, in November 21st. That was the idea. The idea that, that prompted writing a charter was when uh, our pri- former Prime Minister Hamdok signed the agreement with uh, the leaders of the coup. So then we have, as RCs, we have lost hope in everything and we decided to go on and, and, and write our own political charter and have our own political vision. The initiation day was November 21st, 2021. And it took us, the charter was inaugurated on May 2022, 11th of May 2022, in a press conference. So it's around six months. Okay, and and there was another charter process too by another group of resistance committees, correct? That then needed to unify with with the one that you're speaking of. Well, the thing is, with the resistance committees, we vary vastly. We have uh, you can have a member in the RC that is 18 years old, you can uh, and who's only uh, a freshman in university, and you can have a school graduate, you can have a, a professional like myself, and you can have even someone who's 60 or 55 or even older than that. So our opinions are, are, are variable, and we don't have a specific ideology. So that's why there, there's this charter, and that's why there's another group that has its own charter. 
that is more elaborative and focused on, on, on specific details. And yes, we were planning to bring them both together, but of course, with many deliberations taking place and taking longer time, and with the war starting, we were not able to continue the, with that process. Okay. And of course, this can get a bit confusing for outsiders. So can you just describe maybe why are there two different groups of resistance committees? What, what separates them? Is one more Khartoum focused and the other um, has more links to, to outside Khartoum? Or, or what's the main difference? It's actually one that is moderate, that is considered to be moderate in, in, in its approaches and the other group is considered to be radical in the approach. So, uh, for example, one charter is not focused on details, but it's very general. It gives guidelines to how Sudan is to be ruled during the transitional period, while the other is very detailed and uh, and discusses the the all the government structure until the lowest level. And it explains, it's very elaborative and, and it's almost 40 or 40 something pages. So uh, one is very detailed, the other is generic. And what has been the participation in this process of resistance committees outside Khartoum? Okay, uh, first of all, we think that every state has its independent uh, formation and independent resistance committee, and they have their own way of thinking and a different context as well. Khartoum's context is different from the ones in, in Darfur, is different from the ones in the East and so but we also uh, coordinate with our colleagues in other states via our state communication office. So uh, in our structure, we have an office that is called communication office. This office is responsible for reaching out and coordinating with external parties. And when I say external parties, this also includes the uh, other resistance committees in other states. So we we are able to, to coordinate our work together, especially if there is, uh, if there's supposed to be massive protests and synchronized protests. Now, about the, the charter itself, which which you also helped write, I don't mean to overly summarize it, but my recollection was it went something like uh, the process for a transitional government being the formation of a legislative council, which would then appoint and oversee a civilian government moving ahead. Is that, is that right? The, many, uh, the, the uh, specific agenda of the RCs, that is the dissolvement of the uh, RSF, and having a unified army, it discussed also the economic situation and that we wanted all of the uh, state economy to be controlled by and managed by the Ministry of Finance. Because as you know, in Sudan, uh, around 60% of the economy is controlled by the military. So we wanted the power to the people and the money to the people. Discussed also the participation and the inclusion of youth and women in local, gov- in local governance and in, in, in the government itself. It discussed liberties, discussed the process of justice and transitional justice and how we wanted that and how we saw that coming. And it's also discussed the formation of a parliament or or a congress, participation of youth and the participation of the resistance committees in that uh, parliament or congress. And the key question when I read the, the charters back when they came out, it obviously puts a lot of supreme authority in a way in the in the legislature, in the parliament, but but who would appoint who goes into that legislature and, and how is that decided? As we always do, it's uh, via voting and via democracy. So our plan was to to have a wide range. It's not formal election, but it's just a nomination of, of many candidates from several neighborhoods. And then the names, uh, we start to, to put forward names 
in the specific, let's say, committees uh, or Congress committees. And that was our 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 idea of represent of representation. So uh, if we say uh, Khartoum state, Khartoum can name, for example, three or four representatives, and the other states can have like uh, let's say seven seven or more uh, representatives. And all that depends on the uh, amount of people that reside in the area, for example, or square meter area of of the state itself. So, uh, for example, Khartoum has uh, more population than than Khartoum state has more population than than uh, let's say uh, Kadugli state. Then Kadugli gets two seats and Khartoum state gets three seats. So that's how we organized it. We were planning actually to organize it. And so it would be the resistance committees themselves appointing the the legislature. Would there or, or would there be a need to accommodate other political actors who aren't part of the resistance committees themselves? Well. The idea of the charter itself was to have our our own vision, but we can't do uh, we can't implement our vision by being solo. So uh, we were planning to have this charter as a, as a platform to unify all the political forces, because in Sudan we have huge political disagreements and we we find it very difficult to come all together at once. So the charter was supposed to unify all the political bodies. And we were, we were also going in a process, through a process where we wanted to identify, uh, percentages or portions, uh, assigned to, to, uh, the, uh, other political movement and political bodies, but they had to sign and agree, uh, on the charter first. It, it would be that anyone who agreed to the charter and signed up to it, um, could then feasibly be part of the group that then chose the next government. Indeed, yes. Okay, okay. What was the response of other civilian actors, other civilian leaders, such as the uh, Forces for Freedom and Change, the the FFC, who who were leading the negotiations with the with the military component and sort of had their own political process? How did they respond to to this political charter? Well, part of them actually uh, wrote us a response, a response with their uh, opinion and the points that should be included in the charter. Some of them also had some concerns about the terms and conditions of signing the, uh, of being part of the charter and signing it. But all in all, uh, to be honest, they wished us all the best. And they said uh, at, the, uh, at the end, our, our goal is the same. We aim to have a civilian-led government. If you make it, we are with you. If you make it, then, then it's the same. Hmm. And, and what would you say to some critics who say that that in this charter, the resistance committees were in some ways almost claiming to monopolize political legitimacy among its own members. And of course, there are many other groups in Sudan who, who, who likewise, you know, see themselves as primary political actors and, you know, and may need to be part of the, of the solution or at least part of the process moving forward. Well, as you said, legitimacy is, a, is an issue in Sudan, like everybody, everybody's claiming legitimacy. For me, I think that's a valid claim. But why the RCs believe that they are the most legitimate body is that how we manage to organize the people on ground. And this, the love of, of the RCs from the people of Sudan began during the transitional period where the RCs were able to provide uh, the basic, the very basic services to the citizens as the government had many issues and, and with the lack of fuel, the lack of bread, the lack of, of gas, of cooking gas, 
the resistance committees along with the change committees, change service committees, that we, we came together to deliver the, these basic services to the neighborhoods and to the uh, households. So uh, each morning, an, an RC member would knock on your door and hand you a bag of bread. And uh, each two weeks, each uh, three or two weeks, they will knock on your door. They will claim for your uh, gas cylinder. They will fill it for you and return it. So uh, we also organized uh, the fuel uh, distribution and the flour distribution in uh, all the state. And I can say in all Sudan. So the RCs were really involved in the local, at the local governance structure. And we really took care of the people. And that is where our legitimacy comes from. Thanks. Thanks, Mariam. Um, so I, I want to take it, you know, up to the, the present context now. How are resistance committees sort of thinking through the political process moving ahead? Obviously, there's efforts on ending the war that are going on, but most of these efforts are taking place outside Sudan. Are the RCs, you know, transitioning in a way to focusing mostly on humanitarian issues for now? Um, and, you know, and, and what does the political process look like going forward um, as the resistance committees are talking about it internally? Well, yeah, uh, right now we are very focused on the humanitarian situation, but we are keeping in mind and we're monitoring what is uh, happening politically. And in our opinion, we appreciate, of course, all the initiatives that are ongoing, uh, be it internally or internationally. To, uh, to end the war. But the thing is, we have, we have not been represented adequately in all the platforms. The issue with Sudan is not only not being to be able to agree on a specific agenda, but the exclusion of youth is also a problem. So you have a country that has a population that has 60% population of youth, but yet the youth are not represented in any platform are not and are not able to advocate for their opinions and for their rights. As I mentioned also, there's been challenges in agreeing on specific agenda, but when we see the international community also very distracted in many initiatives, it makes us question like, what would it take for everyone to come together and, and help support Sudan uh, and end this war? So you have the Jeddah talks, you have the EGAD, you have the AU, you have the EU, Everyone is working, but they're not also working together. Uh, for us, we wish that everyone would just uh, pile their efforts all at once. And we wish for more representation of the youth, of course, because, again, we are the majority of the people, after all. And in what form would, would you suggest being um, included? I think in the past, it's often been a problem uh, because the resistance committees are horizontal, as you say, in leadership. Um, it's been difficult for diplomats to figure out how to include them in in processes because they might not have clear leaders. They don't want to sit necessarily around a same table as actors they consider illegitimate, like the military. So, so what would be the best way of including the youth or resistance committees in these processes? To be honest, if we say that we want the RCs to be formally represented let's say, negotiation or engage in any talks, it will be very difficult. And it will create more friction within the resistance committees because it's very difficult for us to agree on 70%. And uh, having opinions flying here and there and having uh, political pressure on the RCs can, can have negative results. How I see it is that we have many youth activists, they have their opinions, and also the RCs, they have the charters that sort of form what we see Sudan becoming in the future. So uh, if you can't include 
the RCs as they are formed, we usually just it's better to include the youth leaders, the, the other youth groups and so, not to put pressure on the RCs itself. Um, the, the area of Bari that, that you're from, who, who currently controls it militarily? It's RSF. And what has occupation under RSF forces look like? They're just everywhere. They are staying in homes. They are on the street. They just control all of Bahri, uh, starting from Bahri uh, water station to uh, northern area of Bahri by the River Nile across to the uh, presidential palace until the farthest border of northern Bahri. So entering Bahri can only be through uh, RSF. And they are in hospitals. They are just everywhere. And and what is the engagement like? Have Have, have resistance committees had to interact with the RSF directly in order to do some of these basic activities you were you were talking about? And then how does that interaction go? Well, of course we had to. Uh, and to be honest, it, it was very difficult for my colleagues to do that because of the grievances we have with the RSF. But we had to put the interest of the humanitarian agenda uh, first. And we just approach uh, RSF and, and try to coordinate with them. Uh, it's not a formal coordination, but it's just because we we have they have been around in the neighborhood for over uh, three months. So why not coordinate with them in order to get the basic services and uh, to have access to some hospitals and some neighborhoods and so. And you said earlier that members are you know essentially being hunted down by military intelligence. So you haven't felt the same threat from the RSF. I I cannot confirm or deny that. Because we also have members who are who were detained and tortured by, by the uh, RSF, because uh, of course some of the RCs and uh, I I can say this because we are, we vary vastly as I mentioned we are very different we have we don't have a specific ideology as a result of that some of the resistance committees are now supporting the military because they believe it's the national army and we should all stand behind it and others are supporting uh, the stop of the war. So uh, the RSF members are now targeting RC members who are supporting the the military or the national army. To elaborate a little bit on the uh, on what is happening on ground from the RSF side, I tell you it's a, it's a tragic situation. Uh, they are abducting women and small girls from their homes. They are invading homes. They are uh, robbing houses, robbing stores, robbing the banks. They are basically destroying uh, the city of Bahri. At the same time, they are. Uh, co- we have to. We are forced to coordinate with them. Do you have a picture of what if the RSF essentially remains in control of of much of Khartoum, moving ahead for some period of time? You know, I mean, do, do you have a sense of what the future of of Khartoum holds and and how the RCs will be able to continue working? I think it will be very difficult for RCs to continue working and it will be also very difficult for civilians to continue to live in Khartoum state or in Bahri. Only last night, the military has conducted uh, massive air raids on my neighborhood targeting RSF and in, in Bahri in general targeting RSF. So uh, and we know that this war can, can only end by negotiations, but both of the warring parties believe that they can make advances on ground so the air bombing will not stop. The, the hostilities will not stop. And there's been, as you mentioned, a lot of civilian efforts, in, and they're a bit divided mostly between those 
who say it's time to back the the army, like you said, or or those trying to form coalitions who reject both sides of the war and, and call for an end to the war. How has your resistance committee and other resist, resistance committees, how have they engaged in these sort of alliances and, and how broad do you think these alliances can get beyond just the resistance committees and like-minded, but including other civilian actors who, who may be resistance committees didn't see eye to eye to before the war? Yeah, well, currently we are part of uh, of the alliance to stop, to stop the war as Bahri City, but little progress is made so far to bring along the other civilian bodies, as I say. And uh, the reason for that is that many initiatives are being started at the same time. So you have this end the war and uh, initiative, you have the uh, declaration of uh, humanitarian principles initiatives. It's just very distracting for 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 us and for uh, the context itself we are not able to agree at least on one initiative be it ending ending the war being be it uh, any declaration of uh, humanitarian principles and so if unification is far to be seen i don't think we can reach any to any positive situation what do you think would be the best way of starting a political process for Sudanese moving ahead, even as there are these attempts to get a ceasefire between the two warring parties. But but I think besides that, there's been this big question of, given these claims and counterclaims, like we've talked about, for legitimacy from different actors in Sudan, it's a, it's been a big question of how you even structure a political process that all the necessary people would agree to take part in. And, you know, I think whether or not resistance committees will participate is, is one of the, the key questions moving ahead. So what, what would be the best way of thinking about this, but also going about trying to, to structure a political process for the future of Sudan, you know, which hopefully will intersect and feed into uh, ceasefire talks when possible? Well, uh, for any political process to gain legitimacy, it needs the support of the people. And I tell you, the people of Sudan need to see results as of uh, just agreements on paper and so if there is a political process to be started the leaders of this of this political process should focus first on the humanitarian agenda because uh, after all politics is about addressing the issues of the people you have sudanese trapped in borders in neighboring countries political leaders can start addressing these uh, issues you have the humanitarian situation the dire humanitarian situation they should also address uh, these uh, issues to gain uh, more support from the people. But if that is not done, if, if it's just, just political talk in a, what we call a condescending way, it will not gain any support from the people and not the RCs, of course. Hmm. And would the resistance committees consider participating in, an, in a political process, perhaps under the African Union or EGAD, moving ahead? As I said, if we choose to participate, it will make the situation in the RCs more compl- complicated. And uh, so that's why we prefer to wait for results and then uh, let the people decide because we are, not, we are not the ones who can decide. It's only the people of Sudan who can make the decision and we support them. RCs, like you say, are mostly focusing now on humanitarian issues. What would be the best way for external partners to to support the humanitarian efforts um, resistance committees and others are doing within Khartoum in very difficult situations. I know it's very difficult for outsiders to even figure out how to get support 
to you given given the current situation the main the main body that is running the uh, humanitarian situation is the emergency response rooms and we have coordination with uh, we are now we, we are now in coordination with uh, with uh, humanitarian agencies uh, un agencies uh, ocha and many other uh, humanitarian actors and uh, we would prefer if we we understand that there are some challenges of uh, having to work with the government and so but the recommendation is any money that goes or any money that is channeled through the uh, current government if if we can call it a government will not reach the people of Sudan so uh, i encourage everyone everyone to to channel their support via the emergency response rooms and via the non donors and uh, we have a reporting system that is on on ground happening and we are willing to collaborate more to make sure that the people of Sudan receive the assistance that they need and how are you able to get material goods into khartoum given the current security situation well that's very challenging for example in bahri city because of the level of hostilities uh, the markets are closed now so we get materials or goods from another city and uh, this happens in very close coordination with the rsf forces and we also obtain some of the materials from other states and northern states so uh, we have states that that border bahri from the northern northern side and we coordinate also with rsf to obtain goods from that side but it's very risky because we don't have formal coordination so at some point we lose the goods that that we bring from other states and and from others other locations so what we do now is we we simply try to distribute some cash to to the civilians so that they can manage the, on their own and to avoid the risk of the materials getting uh, confiscated by the by either of the warring parties and is is a functional cash transfer system working yes indeed this system is different for for each city uh, bahri as i said because it has no open market and the context is very special but uh, khartoum umdurman and and shergannil they have open market and and at some point we also can cross the river up to to umdurman to obtain some goods and and medical uh, supplies for for bahri so the system is it might may differ from uh, one 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 locality to another but it's more or less the same thank you ma'am this is this has been an extremely helpful conversation for me but i'm sure also for our listeners um i we, we've touched on this subject but i think maybe a final question i think there's a lot of questions about what what happens to this revolution that took place in in 2019 um and and its future in this current context and especially if this if this war continues how do you, how how do you see the future of the revolution the revolutionary groups the resistance committees um if this war continues if a party like RSF comes out on top and basically tries to rule Sudan by force how do you how do you see the the, the future of everything Sudanese like you have worked for over the past few years well i i think if we were able to overthrow a 30 years dictatorship regime we can achieve whatever we set our our mind to it is indeed going to be very difficult as of course as if the rsf takes control uh we, we will be led by by a, a, if i can say a business entity or a business militia if that's a term and their security grip will be very tight and they will make it very difficult for the uh, movement to for the peaceful movement to conduct its activities but there are 
more than 90 peaceful resistance method. So uh, if you are only using uh, protesting on the street, that's not, not no longer a choice. If we are only using uh, media statements, so be it. But we will come together at some point to overthrow whatever dictatorship is, uh, is thrown in our way. And uh, we will overcome that challenge indeed by using the peaceful resistance methods that are, we have in hand. Uh, I still have hope and many of my colleagues and uh, ha- have hope that this war will end and we will, we will continue to advocate for freedom, peace and justice. And we still advocate for freedom, peace and justice, but in different ways. Thank you, Miriam. We're, we're very grateful you found the time to, to speak with us. We know you're, you're very busy with all these things. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group. You can find out more about our work or read our reports, such as our latest on Sudan at crisisgroup.org. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.